Good morning, Redeemer. Um, it is a blessing to be up here every time. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Ellis, and my family and I are members here at Redeemer. Um, but our, if you have your Bibles, our text this morning will be John 16, verses 16 through 24. John 16, verses 16 through 24. And these, these words that we are about to read are some of Jesus' final words to his disciples. We are on the eve of Jesus' death, and John writes in verse 16, A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, so they are saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take, you, take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Let's pray and ask God for his blessing this morning. Lord, we confess that this is a difficult passage particularly when we are distracted or tired. And it, but we pray that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the encouragement and joy we have in you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we, we all love the good times in life. Um, but one of the most disappointing feelings is when good things end, when the good times end. As a kid, I loved uh, summer camp. It's that one week in the summer where your parents drop you off to let loose and go wild under the supervision of slightly older kids so that you could come home and stop being a kid. But those days, those few days after summer camp uh, ended were some of the worst for me. Um, I would always mope around the house wondering why all of life wasn't some big camp. And good things end for adults too. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been had a work friend or a work team, uh, and you guys worked real well together. Everything clicked. Everybody was vibing. Things were going good. Everyone knows it. Uh, but then someone moves or finds a new job, and you, and you gather to throw a party, and you awkwardly say bye. Well, see you later. Um, but the d- dynamics will never be the same, right? Like, it's just changed. Things aren't the same. And everyone knows it. It's a sad thing when a good thing ends. Looking at the farewell discourse, Jesus' public ministry is coming to an end, and he gathers his disciples for one last period of instruction. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the implications of his departure, and he gives them further teaching on his person and work and how they are to relate to the world once he leaves. Some of the themes he discusses are the things that we've talked about the last couple of months. Um, In this discourse, he talks about his death and betrayal, his going to the Father, and the provision of another counselor in the Holy Spirit. And at this point, the disciples are aware that Jesus is about to leave them. 
And what Jesus wants to communicate is that despite him leaving, he's assuring them, assuring them that a new relationship with God is about to dawn, one that is characterized by intimacy, fruitful obedience, prayer, joy, peace. Their job is to stay behind and witness to the world, but they won't be left alone, for they will have the Holy Spirit to aid them. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit will aid them is this spiritual insight. For at this point, they don't fully grasp Jesus' work. But after the arrival of the Holy Spirit, things will be made clear. And this brings us to our text this morning. Throughout the entire discourse so far, as Jesus is promising a new reality and a new counselor, the shadow of the cross looms just ahead. Jesus has made references to this cross. He's made references to his death. But now on the eve of his crucifixion, there is no way around it. The disciples must be prepared for the anguish and sorrow that they will see and they will experience once Jesus leaves. Three days doesn't seem like too long from our vantage point, um, but it can be hard to understand the disciples' situation. For three years, these men have pinned their hopes on Jesus, and those hopes aren't looking quite like they had anticipated. But nevertheless, Jesus is promising better things, a better helper. And in a few short hours, they will no longer have Jesus. It'll be three days before the resurrection is realized, a few short days without the promised Holy Spirit, three days alone and confused. And we know that in just a short time, the promised Holy Spirit will arrive. We know that in a few short days, they will understand the cross and their new intimacy with the Father. And we know that in just a few short days, they will begin to witness to the world that is still having its effect on our world today. But first, first is the issue of the cross. And that's where Jesus turns his attention. Starting in verse 16, again, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what about... What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And so the question here is, is why the confusion? It seems clear that the first little while and the you will see me, the first, you will, first little while and you will see me is no longer a reference, to the end of Je- is a reference to the end of Jesus' ministry and his looming death. And once he does die, he will physically depart from his disciples and they're not going to be able to see him again. And that leaves us with the the second little while, and the second you will see me. And here we can see why the disciples are confused. Um, They are picking up on the fact that Jesus is departing to go to the Father, but why why would Jesus return? And there there are several different views on what Jesus is referring to. Um, If we take that second you will see in the most literal sense, uh, it it seems to be a direct reference to Jesus' resurrection, right? So if Jesus... In his resurrection, he appears to the disciples, they see him. And this is satisfying in in a lot of ways because it's clearly an instance where the disciples will see Jesus again, and John elsewhere tells us that the disciples were joyful when they see Jesus. And I think that this second scene is certainly not less than the disciples seeing Jesus after his resurrection. Um, But I do believe that this second scene is is more than just physical sight. Um, the two original words for we'll see are not the same words. And where the first we'll see can be taken like in the physical sense where I see you, 
the second we'll see can mean inward vision and, and true apprehension. It's the difference between I see and oh, I see. So we have good reason to believe that the second scene is the scene of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this seems to fit well with kind of our preceding discussions, right? The previous weeks have talked about how Jesus is sending another who will help his disciples. Were the disciples simple followers who, who couldn't comprehend what Jesus was saying? Or maybe, perhaps, what they were lacking was spiritual insight. Insight only complete through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In other words, once Jesus departs, there will be a bodily absence. Jesus will no longer be here. But a phase of spiritual communion is made possible by the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 17 and 18, we see this internal dialogue amongst the disciples. Um, They're whispering to one another, asking about what Jesus could mean, but they're not really bold enough to ask him directly. And what is it the disciples still don't understand at this point? What the disciples don't have is a category for a Christ who would die, for a Christ who would rise again, for a Christ only to leave. For them, confusion is necessary because they are operating with certain expectations. And because of these expectations, they have difficulty understanding the full meaning of Jesus' death, his resurrection, and then his departure. So before they can have clarity, they have to experience a bit of confusion. And without downplaying their, their unique historical situation that the disciples experience, I think we can find a lot of comfort in their confusion. Maybe your expectations for this world aren't matching with what is actually happening in your life. I think if we're honest, many of us expect to go through life largely unscathed, unharmed, um, to live comfortably. Many of us implicitly believe that if we do what God says, that we will be rewarded with a good life, or certainly a safe one. But then reality hits, pressure arises, and crises form, and then the questions of doubt bubble up. What did I do wrong? Is God on my side, and how can this happen? But maybe the worst feeling in all of this is one of abandonment, or having been left all alone. But what the disciples will soon see and what we have the privilege of seeing is that there has always been a plan all along. We certainly have more information than the disciples did, but we too are awaiting the next event in the historical outworking of salvation. We are waiting for the return of Christ and our glorification. So there is comfort in knowing that confusion and sorrow are not abnormal. But there is an even greater comfort in knowing that a spiritual knowledge that God is working out his plan amongst his people, amongst you. Notice also how Jesus is not really addressing their question. Disciples want more information, but Jesus answers not their question, but their need. Their need is for joy because of what's about to happen. Their need for preparation and experience of joy because of what is about to happen. So let's look at verse 20. Truly, truly, if somebody... If somebody turns to you and says, truly, truly, like, it's going to be the main point. So this is, this is the key point here in the entire text is, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And what will cause the disciples to weep is lament is the death of Christ. And I don't think we really comprehend how devastating that is for the disciples. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but think like a disciple for a moment. This individual whom you have followed for three years and 
have seen perform countless miracles, who speaks with authority and claims for himself things only God himself can claim, he begins to prepare you for his departure. And none of this makes any sense to you at all. You're not sure how Jesus will leave, when, how, or why he will return, and what this all means for you as his disciples. And so as events start to accelerate, and before you know it, Jesus is being tried, he's pronounced guilty, he's flogged and hoisted up on a cross, everything you had pinned your hopes on suddenly don't seem very hopeful. Jesus and his kingdom appear to have lost, and the world seems to have won. And what does Jesus say? He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And the first thing I want you to notice about this joy is that it is a transforming joy. If the death of Jesus will cause the disciples to weep and lament, then the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will be that which turns their sorrow into joy. Scripture is full of passages that begin with the morning but end in joy. Psalm 30, 11, you have turned from me my morning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Notice what he is not saying. He is not saying that he will take that bad thing that brought the disciples grief and sorrow, his death, that he will take it away and in turn he will give that which will bring them joy. Rather, the thing that gives them sorrow and grief is the same thing that will make them rejoice. It's the resurrection and the ministry of the Spirit that it reinterprets what the crucifixion means. What the disciples first received as death and loss had itself become the source of their joy. And the opposite holds true. What first appeared as victory to the world is actually defeat. The death of Jesus is not the end for the disciples, but rather it's the judgment and death of the world. And the resurrection of Christ is new life in the Spirit for the disciples. And how is that? It's the ministry of the Spirit and the act of Jesus' resurrection. The disciples begin to understand that Jesus' death was necessary. They begin to see it was necessary for salvation. It was necessary for life, for joy and peace with God. It was necessary for the salvation of sinners. It was necessary for your salvation. It's not... Is it not odd that Christians display the cross so prominently as a symbol of, Christ, of Christianity? It's an instrument of death, and that's the scandal of the cross, is that it's not what it appears. At first, it appears that the world and Satan have won, but the resurrection proves the opposite. The cross is now a symbol of life and God's victory. We just celebrated Easter, and it's Good Friday because of Resurrection Sunday. And Jesus then gives his disciples an illustration to prove his point. Verse 21 reads, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So there's, there's definitely an eschatological point in this illustration. Um, intense suffering and, and then joy and relief in childbirth is, is a common illustration in the Old Testament about how God's people must suffer before joy is experienced in a future Messiah. So Jesus' death and resurrection are important events in salvation history where true joy and relief is accomplished in the suffering and death in Jesus. There's also a theological point that I think is is particularly applicable to us. Um, But first, an illustration of birth. 
whenever I talk about birth, which really isn't that often, I'm, I'm very aware that I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm told it's a painful process. I don't remember all the details about the birth of our two children. I don't remember Bailey turning to me and saying, babe, my hour has come. <laughs> I don't remember the pain and discomfort she had leading up to our arriving at the hospital. I do remember reading every pregnancy book I can get my hands on and feeling really anxious. I remember the uncertainty we had when labor wasn't going as planned and it was decided a C-section was the best option. But the defining memory of our childbirth came after the pain when I saw my child for the first time. Everything else kind of gets absorbed into the joy at the end and not the pain in the beginning. And I think that this is our theological point. It's not just pain, it's not just pain, it's and then joy, but it's through the pain the joy is what it is. And what this means for you is that your suffering is not pointless or something to endure as you wait for it to be taken away and to be replaced with joy. But it's in fact the raw material that will be used for a joy that you don't you can't see. It's not obvious to you. I don't feel like I have a lot of credibility on this topic. I'm not that wise or old, but older and wiser saints will tell you there is an intimacy and joy with Jesus that for them was not possible outside of the real suffering that they experienced. And so I know that there is suffering in this room, and I hope we can mourn with you. I hope we can encourage you in saying that God is good, that he has a plan, and there is a much joy in Jesus. And so Jesus instructs in verse 20, he illustrates in verse 21, and then he applies all this to the disciples specifically in verse 22. So in verse 22, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And I want to focus on that phrase, no one will take your joy from you. This is our second point in the experience of joy. It's a joy that is permanent. It was transformative and it's permanent. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of a new age. It is an age where joy is rooted, not in circumstances, but in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We know that the disciples still experience future grief and suffering. The book of Acts and church history tell us things don't get easier. We know their joy is not because sorrow and suffering will be no more, but it's instead the placement of their joy and sorrow in the larger context of the death and resurrection of Jesus that grounds their joy. Although we are further removed from the resurrection, the same holds true for you and me. The world can't take away your joy if the world never really gave it to you. If the thing that gives you your joy is anything other than Jesus, just know that it's at risk of being taken away or lost. And Jesus is not talking about happiness. There's, there's a vanity or a fleeting nature to happiness. One can argue many of today's modern problems find their root in a searching for that high, that high of happiness. It's why affairs happen. It's why money is stolen and rash decisions are made. And the world can give and take away. But joy is permanent. Joy is deep and will carry you to the end because your joy will be in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And if that is a joy secured by Jesus, then we have a joy that cannot be taken away. This joy that cannot be taken away is a joy that Jesus is about to pour out on his disciples because he knows that once he is crucified and departs, fear and sorrow will win the day. 
but only for a short time because Jesus tells us about an experience of joy that cannot be taken away. Not only does Jesus describe this experience, but he describes the blessings of this joy. And so in verse 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, there it is again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So the in that day that Jesus is referring to is the entire period after his resurrection, which is the end of history. It's the day and age of the Spirit. If you notice in your bulletins, I have the final heading as joy practiced. And although it fits nicely with joy experienced, um, at the last minute I decided the blessings of joy was a more accurate description. So in your bulletins, cross out joy practice and write in blessings of joy. And there are two blessings we now have in the joy experience. The first blessing is knowledge. In this day, the disciples will ask nothing of Jesus. What does Jesus mean by this? Simply, Jesus will depart, and the disciples will not physically be able to ask Jesus of anything. If Jesus isn't in front of you, you can't ask him something. Use of the first ask in this verse is in reference to request for information. It is likely that the things that the disciples were asking were questions to clarify, questions to clarify what Jesus was saying, or questions for more information. We have to remember the disciples were living in a unique spot on the redemptive historical timeline. So much of what Jesus was teaching and saying was enigmatic, mysterious, because they did not have the benefit of hindsight or the spirit like we do today. The disciples now live in a new order, and now that Jesus has risen and ascended and the Holy Spirit has been sent, his disciples have the blessings of a more full and complete knowledge of the work of Jesus. And the questions asked during the life and ministry of Jesus are different from the questions asked during the new age of the ministry of the Spirit. Before Christ's death and resurrection, answers for clarity and understanding were most needed. But today, in the age of the ministry of the Spirit, we ask for courage to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus that we now understand as God-saving sinners in Jesus Christ. And secondly, the Christian life now involves direct access to God, now mediated by Christ. Or more simply, we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. Post the death of Jesus... After his resurrection, ascension, and the outward pouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, we no longer have face-to-face access with Jesus. We have something much better. As difficult as that is to believe, we have something much better. We now have a spiritual communion with the Father. We approach the Father in the name of Jesus on his merit and in his purpose. And so, what happens when we're praying in Jesus' name? It's not a formula. It's not something we just do. It's not a free pass to ask and expect everything that we pray for. That would be dishonoring to Jesus. What we, when we approach the Father and ask in the name of Jesus, we are asking for the things that are consistent with the Son. We ask of things consistent with his person, his work, his purpose, and his message to a lost world. Now let's not overlook these words. You will receive that your joy may be full. What things should we ask for? It's a loaded question. Uh, it's a topic for another day. But I do want to make one point, and it's if Jesus' death and resurrection is the inflection point in all of history, and it's the po- event that brings joy to Jesus' disciples, it seems like today we should ask for that which brings a, an ever-increasing awareness 
of Jesus' death and resurrection. A prayer for boldness and courage to proclaim both individually and corporately to ourselves, to one another, to a lost world, the message of Jesus' death and resurrection for sinners. And finally, the act of praying is an exercise in joy. We are in a new age where we are welcomed into the joy that the Trinitarian God enjoys. Every member of the Trinity now partakes in our prayers as God's people. The consistent pattern in the New Testament is that we ask God as our Father through the work of the Son in the Spirit. And this is the practice of joy. To commune with the Trinitarian God in the mission of proclaiming the message of Jesus' death and resurrection to a lost world. And I love the beauty in this sentence by Charles Ross. He's a Scottish minister. And he says, Prayer is, as it were, the mighty steed that draws the chariot in which we ride to the gate of celestial joy. Before the disciples, before the disciples never prayed, they never prayed, Our Father, we ask in Jesus' name. But now Jesus has left the Father to the Father and he has sent the Spirit. And those words now become the privilege of the new order, the new age. That privilege is the same for the disciples as it is for us. And the obvious point of application I can make is to ask, what is the connection with prayer and joy in your life? But I'm going to skip that and trust the Spirit will impress on you as you read the text, that question. What I want to do is make an observation that I hope will resonate with you. As God moves and works within your life to respond to his grace by putting death sin and walking in obedience, he is shaking you free from the sins and cares of this world and is giving you desires for what are eternal. But when prayer is missing and we neglect what God the Father offers in the name of the Son, joy fades and it becomes a chore and a burden, a duty. Our God gives us longings for himself, longings to love God, to love neighbor, to meet the, and we, by doing that without prayer, we meet the friction of trying to do things on our own. And this leads, our, leads to seasons of funks and seasons of sorrow, seasons of exhaustion, and so perhaps what we need to embrace is, is that these de- blessings of joy are now ours in Jesus and to can make that connection between prayer and joy and what we're doing in our lives and what Jesus is doing through us. So the disciples were in a unique point in redemptive history. Jesus was soon departing. He was promising an even greater counselor and helper But Jesus knew better than the disciples, and he knew his death was going to bring sorrow and grief towards those whom he loved. So he is cluing them in to the joy that will be theirs in due time. Their grief was real, but after the resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit, they had an incredible privilege to see the full work of Christ and to pray to the Father in joy. And the New Testament is a testimony to the joy that sustained their witness. It's a witness of Christ's work in saving sinners to a lost world. And we today stand further along um, the timeline of redemptive history. We have the same privileges and joys as we await for the next redemptive act in God's plan, as we wait for glorification and Jesus' return. And when different sorrows and grief weigh us down, we look to the same victory and life accomplished in Christ's crucifixion. We have the same transformative and permanent joy. 
And we, too, go to the same Father in the name of Jesus, knowing that our joy will be full. There is, this is what I want to leave you with this morning, is there is nothing more joyful, more joyous than a joy that's accomplished in the past. A joy accomplished by God, who not only is mighty and sovereign and powerful, but he dearly loves you and cares for you. And so I want to close with these these words by a Scottish, the same Scottish minister, uh, Charles Ross. And he, he writes, It is true indeed that this life is a veil of tears, but it is also true that there is a joy in the Christian's heart of which the Spirit of God is the author, and for which no man, not even the devil, nor the world, nor the flesh, can ever deprive him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a joy that is more transformative, more permanent, more revealing, and more inviting than any joy we can conjure up ourselves. We thank you that this joy is established in the Son, supplied by the Spirit, and will carry us to you, to the Father. Meet us in our weakness and strengthen us in your power. We pray in the name of Jesus.